Let's turn to Genesis chapter 19. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis 19. This is a uh, familiar story, uh, not one that we typically would would choose to 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 read or to to preach on. I guess that's the blessing of going through a book of the Bible as you end up speaking about things that you wouldn't typically. So we're in Genesis 19, which tells the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot and his daughters. It's obviously fall, right? The leaves are changing. It's kind of crisp outside. We finally got some apple cider at our house. I don't know if you've had cider yet or not. Um, one of the things I love about fall is having bonfires. I don't know if you do that in your backyard, have a little campfire. We lived in a condo for about four years, and I always wanted to have a backyard so that we could have just a, you know, a pit to go and, and burn some wood. I don't know what it is about that, but I just always wanted to do that. And so now we have, uh, we're renting this house, and we have a, a fire pit. One of the first things that we got was a fire pit, and, and I love it. And I tell the girls, hey, let's go outside and have a fire. And what they hear is, hey, let's go outside and make s'mores. Um, so that's that's all they want is, is s'mores, but I just like to sit out there. <clears throat> I would think that the only drawback, from a fire is when you're all done, man, you just smell like smoke. You just stink. Now, you don't even know it while you're out there, but then you go inside and you take your clothes off and you can smell it. It's all over you, and then it's in your hair, and you sleep that night, and you wake up, and your pillow smells like smoke. and Just everything has this, this smell to it. You don't really notice it at first, but then later on it becomes overwhelming. The last time that we saw Lot was in Chapter 14. Uh, this is when Abraham went and rescued him from the kings of the north and brought him back down. And what's strange to me is that for some reason, Lot didn't stick around and stay with Abraham. But Lot went back to Sodom. Lot decided that he wanted to stay there. Maybe it was the allure of the riches that were there. Probably had a life that was filled with ease. Sodom was a place of lots of wealth, a place that you could make a name for yourself. And he had probably been there long enough that he had built up some sort of reputation, some sort of wealth, and he decided that he wasn't ready to to give that up. But he's been there a long time. He's He's been there long enough that he started to kind of smell like Sodom. This stench has sunk deep into him. It's, he stinks like the sin that is there. This sin is beginning to seep into him and, and change him. And as we read chapter 19, there's a lot that we could say, but I think this is the message for us from God's Word this morning, and it's this, it's that the sin that surrounds us can seep into us, but God is full of mercy. The sin that surrounds us can seep into us, but God is full of mercy. Just like the smoke from a backyard fire changes the way that our clothes smell and something that engulfs us. We may not even notice it at first, but suddenly it becomes overwhelming. We realize that we have taken on the smell of this fire in the same way Lot has taken on the smell of Sodom, and so too for us. The sin that surrounds us can seep into us and change us. But the beautiful truth that we'll see at the end here is that God is full of mercy. We would like to read this story and just kind of point our finger at Lot talk about how foolish he was, but I believe that as we read this, and as we read it honestly, we're suddenly going to see ourselves in Lot. And as we see ourselves, we'll see that we're guilty as much as he was, and we are in need of God's mercy just as much as Lot was. We're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 19, try to follow along with the story. It's it's a 38 verses, so it's a little long, but it's a, it's a good story. Um, 
So let's zero in here, Genesis 19. It's going to begin with the two angels. The last time that we saw the two angels was back in 1822 when um, the Lord sent them on and then had a conversation with Abraham. Well, in the meantime, they've been traveling. And it says here, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is, not, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, but I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. Zoar, meaning little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. (coughs) What a story. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it does. What is the truth that God has for us from this? I'll tell you what, there's a lot in this passage. And again, I think we could say more than what we'll even say this morning. But again, I think it's this main idea that the sin that surrounds us can seep into us. But God is full of mercy. I want to just consider, as we walk through this, uh, for the most part this morning, we're going to consider Lot's character. So Lot's character. I'm going to give you some descriptions of, of who Lot is, of what his character is like. The first thing that I'd say about that we can say about Lot from this passage is that he has remaining righteousness. He has remaining righteousness. You'll notice right at the beginning, the two angels come into the town. Lot sees them. He rises up, bows down to them with his face to the earth, and invites them to come into his home. Who does this remind you of? It should remind us of Abraham. It's very parallel to what happens at the beginning of 18, that the three men come. And Abraham goes out, bows down, says, come into my house, offers them food, is very hospitable to them. And so Lot is, is very parallel to Abraham. The, the one, one thing that we could say is different is that the Lord is not with these two angels. That's interesting to note. The other difference is, is they reject his hospitality. They say, no, we're going to spend the night in the square. In a sense, the angels are trying to keep themselves as far away from the sin of Sodom as they can. They're not going to go into someone someone's house, even if it is Lot. But we see that, that Lot presses them. He kind of twists their arm and says, no, you need to come into my house. So he's hospitable, but in, in actuality, what he's doing is he's trying to protect these men. He knows that if they stay in the city square, that it is not going to go well for them, that they may be harmed by the men of the city, they may be taken advantage of. Anything could happen. Lot knows Sodom better than these men do. And so he presses them strongly, and they come into his house, and it says that he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So we see, we see Lot's remaining righteousness through his hospitality. The story goes on, and it says, Before they lay down, the men of Sodom come, and, and they start to surround the house. It's, it shows that everyone, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they wanted these men to come out, it says, so that they would know them. And Lot goes out of the door, shuts it behind him, and stands between the door and these men. And he stands as kind of a blockade against them coming to these two men that have come into his home. And he says, you read the words there, it says in verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, 
do not act so wickedly. There's a sense of righteousness here. Lot knows that what they want to do is wrong. He knows that this is wicked. And he is telling them, do not do this. He recognizes the wickedness that's there. So we see this remaining righteousness. And the only reason I think that we can say that is because of our reading from Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, there Peter unashamedly calls Lot a righteous man. Now, if I read Genesis 19, that's the last thing that I'm going to say about Lot. But I have to believe that it's true because that's what Scripture says. It's what Second Peter says, that he was a righteous man. It says that he was distressed by the wickedness that surrounded him, that he was tormented in his soul by all that he saw and heard. He knew what was going on in this city, and he knew wickedness when he saw it. He knew that it was wrong, but he just wasn't ready to leave. The comforts, the pleasures of Sodom were just too great for him to flee from. The problem, I think as we saw back when, when he chose to go to Sodom, the problem isn't necessarily that Lot is in Sodom. The problem is that Sodom has gotten into Lot. That Lot has been transformed by this city. He's changed rather than being an agent of change. Do you remember what we saw last week? That Abraham comes and he prays before the Lord. He says, God, would you spare this whole city for the sake of 50 righteous people? And then he whittles it down all the way to 10. And he says, God, would you spare this city for the sake of 10 righteous people? What's the thought there? The thought is that in, in Sodom, as wicked as it is, if there are 10 people who are truly righteous, they can turn this city around. They can, they can bring righteousness back to the city. They could stem the tide of, of wickedness. God was willing to show mercy for the sake of ten because the ten could have that effect on the city. There is a righteousness. There's a kind of righteousness that Jesus says is the salt of the earth, that it preserves and it flavors society. It, it changes it. There's a righteousness that's like the city on a hill. It's a light. It lights up the city. It exposes darkness and it attracts people to come to it. That's the kind of, that, that's the kind of righteousness that we want to have. But then there's a righteousness like Lot's. It's, it's a righteousness that's bothered, that's provoked by sin, but it's a righteousness that, that, righteousness that does little to change what's going on. It's a righteousness that has its conscience pricked. It says, this is wrong, but the will is never enacted, and Lot never does anything to stop the wickedness that is there. Maybe it's because love for the world is too strong, Maybe it's because if he were to speak up or, or to leave, then it puts his life into a place that he doesn't want to be. It makes it uncomfortable for him. My question as we look at this, is this the kind of righteousness that we have? Are we really good at recognizing wickedness? We know what's wrong. We know the things in our society that, that are bad. We know what we would say, that is wicked. But we're too compromised, we're too weak, we're too faithless to actually stand up and to be salt and to be light, to be a city on a hill in dark places. We would all admit, right, that the sins of Sodom are present in our day and age. We look at the, the sexual depravity that is in Sodom and we say, that is present in our day and age. And then we have to go beyond that. Remember what we saw last week in Ezekiel? What was the sin of Sodom? Not just the sexual sin. Yes, that was there. But what else was the sin of Sodom? That they had so much. They had so much money. They had so much food. And they were poor and needy and suffering people surrounding them that they never helped out. 
we should recognize both of those things as wickedness. Just a word to us, we're very good at recognizing the first category, but sometimes we neglect to see the wickedness of having plenty and not helping those in need. That is just as wicked before God. We should recognize that. We should be provoked by these things. But our righteousness can't stop there. It can't be something where we say, that's wrong, and then we just close our mouths and we do nothing about it. That's the kind of righteousness that it seems Lot had. Rather, when we are provoked in our spirit, when we're tortured by the sin that surrounds us, what should our response be? Our, should, our response should be like Abraham. We should intercede. We should pray that God would show mercy. Not only that, but we should begin asking how we as individuals or, or as a church can do something. How could we be salt? How can we be light in the midst of darkness? If all we do is, is point the finger... If all we do is puff ourselves up in our own self-righteousness, then our righteousness is going to do as much for our city as Lot's righteousness did for Sodom. In other words, it's going to do absolutely nothing. Lot has this remaining righteousness, but it's not a righteousness that amounts to any change within Sodom. So he has remaining righteousness. The next thing I would say is that Lot has twisted morals. He has twisted morals. If you had a compass up here, we take the compass, and the compass is going to tell us which direction to go. The way that a compass works is that it, it points towards magnetic north. So that's how we know that a compass works. Now, I'm not much of a frontier, you know, I was never a Boy Scout. My dad was, and I just never did that. So I don't even know if I could really make it work. But I know that that's how it's supposed to work, is that the needle points towards magnetic north, so we know the way to go. Now, if there's some other magnetic force that's stronger than magnetic north, then that compass is going to be off. It's not going to work properly. And I think what we have with Lot is, is he has a compass that sometimes works and sometimes not, depending on which force is stronger. Sometimes that, that godliness, the righteousness, is what's strongest, and it says this is what's right. But there's other things that are pulling him. His love for the society, his love for ease, his love for money. The, the culture that surrounds him and what they are telling him is okay is, is pulling and it's messing up his moral compass. It's saying, this is right, no, this is right. And he, and he doesn't know because he's been in the city for too long. So Lot, when his compass is working correctly, he stands outside that door and he says, men, don't act so wickedly. And when he says that, it's as if in his mind he knows, oh no, I'm standing up against these guys. They're going to kick me out of the city. They're going to do something bad to me i got to come up with a way to, to stop them from doing that. And so we see in verse 8, Behold, can you believe this? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. How twisted is that? What's going on in Lot? He's in Sodom again, but Sodom is also in him. He takes this despicable, disgusting situation and he comes up with an even more despicable and disgusting solution. Why? How could he think that this is a godly solution to the problem that's before him? It's because his conscience has slowly become dull. He's been there too long. You know how you develop calluses and you don't feel things where you normally might? get a callus on your foot, and it doesn't hurt when you step on something because you've developed this callus. It's as if there's parts of Lot's conscience that are just calloused, and he doesn't understand. So he offers this solution, and he thinks that this is a good solution. And we all look at it and say, that is terrible, Lot. How could you ever do that? 
The problem is that his compass is off. He's got all these forces that are pulling him in different directions. He doesn't know what to do. I think this happens to us. Where is our conscience callous? What are the forces that are changing what we understand as moral and true? We live in the world, yes, but how much of the world lives in us? How much of the world is pushing us, deciding what is right? Are there things that we would say, yeah, this is good, and some people would look at it and say, how in the world can you say that that is moral, that that is right? The problem is we've been pulled in different directions. I mean, I can come up with some ideas. I don't know what the forces are. We might say it's television shows that we watch where we wouldn't have watched them 10 years ago, and they espouse certain viewpoints. And slowly as we watch them, we say, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, when years pass, we would have said that's terrible. Things that cause our moral standards uh, to weaken. What are the things that we read, magazines or websites or books? Do they make us callous to what is wrong? Maybe our friends, our coworkers, they're influencing us more than we are influencing them were afraid to stand up for what's right because it might cost us something just as Lot was afraid to stand up? Are we worried that we're going to lose our standing with our friends if we don't laugh or we don't watch or we don't talk the way that they do? It's so subtle. It's like smoke from the fire. You don't even know. It just starts to seep into your clothes and seep into who you are and you begin to stink like the world. And the world gets into us when we're supposed to be the salt and the light that flavors it. I think we need to ask ourselves these questions sometimes. We're shocked by Lot's suggestion, but sometimes we should be shocked at the things that we accept as moral and, and okay. What are the forces that are pulling us, whether they're internal or external? There are things that are causing uh, even us to have twisted morals like Lot. So Lot has remaining righteousness. He has these twisted morals. And I think these twisted morals then lead to the third thing. It's a hypocritical reputation. It's a hypocritical reputation. Everyone looks at Lot and says he's a hypocrite. The men of Sodom, you see, they see right through Lot's show of righteousness, and they call him out as a hypocrite. He says, don't do this, and then he offers his solution, and they say, stand back. And they say, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become the judge. We're going to deal with him worse we're going to deal with you worse than with them. They say, what are you talking about, Lot? You come in here and you're acting all self-righteous. We know who you are. You've been here long enough. We've seen that you've. this is the first time that you've stood up to us. You think that we're going to believe you now? He knows what's wicked, but it's almost as if it's too little, too late. His complacency up to this point and his immoral solution have made him an object of criticism and anger and laughter. And now he's about to be crushed at his own front door. But God is merciful. The angels reach out, miraculously grab him, pull him in, strike those that are outside with blindness. And then they tell him why they are there. They finally reveal who they are. They say, Lot, we are going to destroy the city. Because the outcry, you remember that from last week, the outcry has risen up to us. And this city is going to be destroyed. But you are going to be saved. So find anyone that you can, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone, and tell them to come out. So he goes, verse 14, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. They weren't married yet. They were probably engaged. It was um, as much as being married in that society. And he says to them, up, oh, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Now, I've told jokes before. That doesn't sound like much of a joke, does it? His sons-in-law look at him, and they think that he's joking. Why? 
Why would you think that that's a joke? Probably because that's how Lot always talked. This may be the first time that Lot has ever come to them and had a serious conversation, that he's come to them and talked about righteousness, that he's had the guts to stand up and say something bad is going to happen in this city. They are profane men of the city, but the fact that their opinion and their respect for their father-in-law is so low, it reveals that, that they, they, they didn't take him seriously. They didn't take him as some sort of moral force in their lives. Had he ever spoken this way to them before? We're all a little foolish in high school, you know. I, I can remember um, that often I, I, was, I was a believer in high school, and so often my desire was to honor God. But, but very often my desire was to be liked, and more specifically to be funny. That was how I wanted people to like me, to think that I was funny. And I can think of some relationships where people often saw me wanting to be hilarious more than they saw me wanting to be holy. Or they saw that me saying, hey, look at me, rather than saying, hey, look at Christ. And I can think of specific circumstances where the opportunity to have a deep conversation, to have a serious conversation, maybe about the gospel, maybe about their own personal walk with Christ, that those opportunities came up. And when I tried to take hold of them, it, it was as if I was joking. Because my conversation up to that point had, hadn't been around those things. It was so foreign to them that they didn't understand that I really wanted to talk about this. They thought I was making some sort of joke. See, the problem for Lot, the problem for us is that when 99% of what we say sounds just like everyone else, then when we take that 1% and we try to be serious, we try to talk about something holy, we try to talk about something that is true and right, then people just kind of laugh at us. They say, well, that's not who you are. At least that's not how you usually are. It doesn't mean that every conversation that we have needs to end with calling someone to repentance. But what it does mean is that there should be a way that we live and talk with our neighbors and our family and our friends that doesn't, it doesn't surprise them when we get serious. It doesn't surprise them when we ask them about eternal things. It doesn't surprise our, our unbelieving friends and neighbors when we say, hey, what do you think about the person of Jesus? That it's not something that they laugh at, but they realize we're serious. We really do want to talk about this. I think for Lot, he was just so scared all the time, and he never had stood up. And finally, when he does, everyone thinks that he's a joke. Because he's a hypocrite. He's been a hypocrite the whole time. So it's easy for us to do this. So I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the, what is the flavor of our speech usually? And when we bring up things like this, do people say, yeah, that's, that's how Andy usually talks? Or do they say, where did that come from? It's out of the blue. It must be joking around. So Lot has remaining righteousness. but He's got twisted morals. He's got this hypocritical reputation. And then he has a love for things. A love for things. See this starting in, in verse 15. The city is about to be destroyed. It says, it says, as morning dawned. Uh, you see all these phrases about how long the, this is about. You know, it was the angels came in the evening and, and the sun comes up. The angels say to Lot, get up, take your wife and your two daughters are here, lest you be swept out of the city. So the angels say, this city is going to be destroyed. Warn everyone that you know. And they get up in the morning and they say, Lot, it is time to get out of here. And verse 16 is very telling. It says, but he lingered. He lingered. That's like saying if, if there was a volcano here in Louisville somewhere and we knew it was going to erupt and you almost see the, the lava spitting out and we just kind of say, hmm, 
I think maybe I'll stay here. Uh, the, the judgment is coming. And for some reason, Lot just stands there. Why? Maybe he just doesn't realize the danger, but I think that what it is is he just he sees all that he's going to leave behind. You can imagine Lot standing in his house, the wealth that he has built over the years, the position that he has in this society, and he says, I've got to leave all this? I've got to leave everything behind? My reputation, all the goods that I've acquired, all of my, my stuff? He just lingers. He says, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave all everything that I have, all of my stuff, the comfort that he has. The reason I think that's what he's talking about is because of what we understand about his wife. The story of Lot's, of Lot's wife is that, that she, as they are fleeing, she turns around and she turns into a pillar of salt. I don't think that what that's communicating necessarily is that, that she was walking and all of a sudden she accidentally glanced over her shoulder and boom, she's turned into some statue made of salt. But rather, that Lot's wife started leaving and said, I don't want to leave. I want to go back. She went back into the midst of the destruction. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Let me tell you why I think that if you keep your finger in Genesis 19 and you turn to the book of Luke, 17, Jesus gives us some insight and a warning related to Lot's wife. Luke 17, and then in verse 28, um, Jesus is saying that everything will be going on normally in life, and then suddenly judgment is going to come. He gives the example of Noah, and then he gives the example of Lot. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, life was just going on as it normally did in Sodom. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's saying it will come when no one expects it. But listen to this. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, his goods are in the house, don't let him, let him not come down, come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. He says, when the day of the Lord comes, don't be on a rooftop and, and say, I'm going to go back and i got to get all my stuff. And if you're in the field, don't run back to your house and get everything that you own. Remember Lot's wife. <laughs> He seems to indicate that's what Lot's wife did, that she had gotten out of the city and then she suddenly remembered all the things that she had, all the things that she loved. And she said, well, I'm just going to go back and get these things. And in the midst of that, she got caught up in the destruction. As we live our lives in this world, we fill our lives with the stuff of this world. And sometimes we don't, we don't realize the danger that, that that poses. We think we own our stuff and sometimes our stuff owns us. That we have possessions, but they possess us. They hold on to our hearts. They keep us from walking in a way of holiness. They keep us from following the commands of God. Why did Lot linger? Because he loved the world and the things of the world. And the love of the Father at times was not in him. It, it, it was eventually because he was rescued. I wonder what, what the, the state of Lot's wife's heart was. She loved the things of this world. To be careful. I was, as I was thinking about this, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Is that what it is? Where they are looking for the Holy Grail. Um, and it kind of goes, I'll, I'll 
past the seal once they find it and everything starts to, to fall apart and there's these two people that are looking to get it and the one guy in looking to get this holy grail because of the power that it had ends up falling into this pit and dying because he wanted this thing and his love for that grail is what destroyed him in the end and then there's a girl that is reaching for it and indiana jones encourages her just let it go let it go save your life get out of here before we're all destroyed and the picture is that sometimes when we when we are grasping for the things that we feel like we need, they end up destroying us. We can drown in our own stuff. We have to resist that. We have to resist what's going on. We, we Sometimes we linger. We don't go after what God has called us to. Now, I'm not calling you to get rid of all your stuff or what people have called a poverty theology. <laughs> what, what, what I'm saying, though, is are there things that are holding your heart? Is there stuff that you just love too much? And it keeps you from following after God. So love for things. The next thing we see in Lot is in gratitude. These men grab him. They pull him out of the city, him and his daughters. It's a great picture. Um, there's two angels. Everyone's lingering in the house. And the angels say, we're taking matters into our own hands. One of them grabs Lot's hand and his wife's hand. The other one grabs one daughter's hand and the other's daughter's hand. And they drag them through the streets of the city out of the city they get out of the city and they say now get out of here escape for your life don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley escape to the hills lest you be swept away and you think lot would fall on his face and say thank you for rescuing me but he says no no i don't want to go to the hills can you just send me to a little city maybe because you know i, I it'll be bad to go into this place he doesn't thank them for their kindness, but he pleads that they would let him go to Zor. And in a sense, what he's saying is he's saying, I know you're taking me out of Sodom, but can I go to this mini Sodom over here, Zor? Maybe you won't destroy that. I'd like to just go there so that maybe I can have some of the things that I've had in Sodom. If I'm the angel, I either drag Lot back into the city and destroy it, uh, or I say, no, get out of here and go to the hills. I've given you salvation. Get out of here. We're astonished at Lot's ingratitude. We often miss our own, though. Have you seen that, that show? Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. It's called Extreme Makeover Home Edition, where they, they come to someone's shack, and they say, we're going to transform your house. And usually they bulldoze the whole thing and build them this big, beautiful home. And then there's the classic thing, which just, I don't know, I don't really enjoy it that much. But they have the bus, and they, they pull the bus away, and they show their reaction. They all go crazy, you know. we got this new house. Can you imagine if they pulled that bus away? And this whole family is standing there like, is that it? I mean, I thought it would be bigger. Can you imagine? I mean, what ingratitude. I feel like that's what's going on with Lot here. They, they pull him out of the city. They rescue his life. And he says, can you send me to a city instead of to the hills? We're astonished at that, but sometimes we are just as ungrateful. We don't realize, what have we been saved from? If we are in Christ, we have been rescued from God's judgment on us. And yet so often we complain and we say, but God, why couldn't you give me this? You know, why, why does my life have to be hard in this specific area? We're filled with ingratitude like Lot. When sometimes we should just be saying, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me, for pulling me out of destruction. So we see his ingratitude. And then the last thing I want to point out with Lot is his legacy of corruption. His legacy of corruption. Uh, verses 30 through 38 are um, not verses that you typically want to read. They hearken back to Noah, don't they? Do you remember Noah after he uh, is rescued from the flood? 
um, that he he gets drunk and his son sees his nakedness. I don't know if you remember that story, but it's kind of a parallel. It's showing that this man is righteous, but he's not perfect. Well, we know that about Lot already, but it just kind of emphasizes that. We see this chapter, and again, we see that while Lot and now his daughters are outside of Sodom, Sodom is still inside them. Um, unlike Abraham, Abraham was called to teach his generations about justice and righteousness, and Lot has trained his children how to be deceptive, how to operate with worldly wisdom that's devoid of faith. They see everything destroyed, and in some sense they think the whole world has been destroyed. And they say, well, we have to lie with our father to keep uh, the line going. And what happens is the emphasis is actually in verses 37 and 38, which don't mean a whole lot to us, but would have meant a lot to the Israelites as they were preparing to enter the, the promised land. It says that the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Uh-oh, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. These are enemies of God's people. And they came from Lot and from his disobedience and from the disobedience that he passed on to his daughters, and it continued on. And these people were always causing problems for Israel, for Abraham's children. And so he has this legacy of corruption because he didn't walk in holiness. Not only are his daughters practicing wickedness, but now he, he ends up becoming the father of all these nations that cause issues for Israel. What's our legacy? Now, our sin, our, our laziness, our disobedience, it doesn't just affect us. This is a truth that I remember learning, and it just struck me. There is no such thing as victimless sin. There's no such thing as victimless sin. When we sin, when we fail in different ways, it doesn't just affect us. It affects others. And, and all of these things about who Lot is affected not just him. It affected his daughters. And it affected all of Israel, people that he would never even meet. So, we've seen Lot. He's a hard character to fully understand, especially in light of passages like seven, Second Peter. It's hard to understand until we realize that, that he's us. That so much of who Lot is, this, this man who understands righteousness and yet just is so drawn to the world, it's us. This is, this is who we are so often. Now, if your response to this is to say, oh, I see myself in Lot. I recognize that. I see my ingratitude. I see my twisted morals. I see my, my hypocritical attitude. I see my love for the things of this world. I see that sometimes I'm leaving this legacy of corruption. But we recognize that we should be pricked in our heart with that. But the response should not be, I'm just going to try to be better. Man, if Lot would have just tried harder, I think he would have been okay. What's the message of this? Why was Lot saved? That's the question I want to ask is, what, how was Lot delivered? And the two key verses are verse 16 and then verse 29. Verse 16, when Lot lingers, it says, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Here's the key phrase. The Lord being merciful to him. Did Lot deserve that mercy? I think we could all say, no, absolutely not. He had done nothing to earn this mercy. But God grabs him by the hand and pulls him out of the city. Why? Because he is full of mercy. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, we do not deserve what we have been given. But God has shown us mercy. 
maybe you're here this morning and you see this and you say, this is me, but, but you've never come to Christ. I think the call is God, God wants to be merciful to you, not because you deserve it, but because you are lost in the midst of this city. And if he is opening your eyes to see the truth, he wants to grab you by the hand and rescue you from the coming judgment, from the judgment because of your sin. And if we would turn from our sins and come to Christ, he will save us, not because of anything good that we have done, but because of his mercy in Christ. God pulls him out of the city. This is the message of our salvation. We read it this morning in Sunday School, Colossians 1.13. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. God has rescued us. He's pulled us out of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. The message of salvation is not that we have done anything good, but that God is merciful to us. Look at verse 29, though. Actually, let's look at verses 27 through 29. The story shifts back to Abraham. It says, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. You remember that? Where he's interceding for Lot. He's back at that spot. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked. And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. I wonder what Abraham was thinking in that moment. We're not told. I wonder if he, he didn't know, I don't think, that Lot had been rescued. He just saw the smoke going up and he knew that God had destroyed the city. My thought is that he, he knew that God had done what was right. But then there's this beautiful part, verse 29. So it was that, this is the summary statement. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. It was because of Abraham. Why was Lot rescued? Because of himself? Because he was righteous? No, it was because of the mercy of God and because of his uncle. Because his uncle was praying for him. I think there's two pictures here. The first is this picture of intercession. Abraham had prayed. And God heard him. I think the encouragement is that we should pray. We should pray for the lots that we know. We should pray for the people that are in the city, that are in the world, and they are so blind. They're so weak, and they just don't want to come out. They want to stay in there forever. We should pray that God would be merciful and save them. And we have the encouragement here that God hears us, and God may save someone because we have prayed, because he remembers us. He looks and he says, they prayed for that person, and I'm going to be merciful to them because of their prayers. What a powerful thing intercession is. Often we neglect praying for others, praying for the lost. But I think more so it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of, of God's mercy. Think about Lot. We can think about him at, at that door, and he's getting ready to be crushed. And, and God thinks, God could have just let it happen. But he remembers Abraham, and he shows mercy, pulls him out from that door. And then um, when he wakes up in the morning and the angels say, let's go, and Lot lingers. And God could have just said, fine, stay here. But he remembers Abraham, and he pulls him out of the city. And when he pleads for that, for, for Zor, 
God could have said, fine, if you want to be ungrateful, then you can go back in the city, and I'm not going to save you. But he remembers Abraham, and he gives him the city. And in fact, Zor is spared because of Lot's presence there. And so true is, is true for us that, that when we are ready to be crushed by our own wickedness, by our own sin, that Jesus steps in, and Jesus is crushed for our iniquity. Jesus becomes the one that takes our place. And when God looks at us in our foolishness and in our twisted morals, he remembers Christ. He doesn't crush us. He rescues us. He pulls us in. And then when we linger, when we say we love the world more than we love Christ, we love the things of this world, that God could destroy us because of that, but he remembers Christ. He remembers Christ's righteousness, that Christ laid aside everything for our sake, and he rescues us. And when we are ungrateful at everything that he has given us, and he could just consume us because of that, he remembers Christ, and he shows us mercy. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the one that we are saved through. God remembers Jesus, and we are saved. I think the question that we have to ask in light of this is, do we smell like the world? Has the world gotten into us in the same way that Sodom got into Lot? I think we need to ask ourselves these these questions. But when we see it, and, and, and there are all different areas where we're going to find that, we're going to see that the world has gotten into us it's twisted our morals it's made us hypocrites we love things we we have this legacy of of corruption all these things they are they are part of us in different ways but the response is not i'm just going to try better i'm going to try harder but rather we should say god rescue me pull me out of this city you you've got to do it not because of anything that i've done but because of what christ has done remember me for the sake of jesus so recognize those things, confess, repent of the way that that we have failed, but then pray that Christ would show you mercy, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Lord God, it would be our wicked hearts, we just want to point a lot and talk about how terrible he was. But when we point at him, we're pointing at ourselves. We recognize our faithlessness and our sin. Lord, forgive us. And I I pray that you would change us, not by our own goodness, but by, by your mercy shown to us in Christ, Lord, that you remember Jesus on our behalf and we are spared. And we pray for those that are lost in the city and the destruction is imminent, Lord. And we ask in your mercy for friends, neighbors, for family members, and for people that we've never met, that you would show mercy and you would drag them out of the city because of what Christ has done. Pray all this in his name. Amen.